Hello, friends, and welcome to Backstory. I'm your host, Alex Roberts. Friends, my guest today is game designer Catherine Rahman, who, among many other games, is now working on Red Carnations on a Black Grave. It's a game about the 1971 Paris Commune, which, if you're wondering, what's that? I wondered the same thing myself. Tuck in for a very exciting history lesson as well as game design discussion. Let's jump right in. other people <laughs> <laughs> is your is your kickstarter going on right now no the the theory is that uh, i'm recording for uh, one shot and uh i mean you know beyond the network there the 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 eponymous podcast and my my theory is is that if if you uh have your your new game on on one shot you should kind of you know run the kickstarter around then that is wise i have heard I'm no expert. Well, I am. But... But, well, I mean, <laughs> I, I seem to recall a certain event going fairly well for you uh, twice. <laughs> twice, actually. Yeah, I do okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and this, this is planned to be just a very small Kickstarter because I do not, I do not trust uh, the fact that people keep telling me that there's funny people want this game and I just keep going back to it's it's doomed French proto-communists. How many people could there be? But... Mm, here's the thing. Doomed. Yeah. There's nothing a LARPer loves more than to be doomed. Yeah, that that does draw them in. That does draw them in. You say, you just put the word tragedy somewhere around. And people go, oh, yeah, exactly. Doomed. I mean, do, do, is the doomed part, like, up for grabs? Like, is it is it negotiable? I'll put it to you this way. Um, the game has a lot of uh, shared uh, history with Montsegur 1244. Uh, you know, a lot. The, the, the core of the game is basically um, very similar. There's important differences at this point, but uh, Montsegur only promises to kill some of your characters. I guarantee half of them will die. <laughs> That's a guarantee. You could take that to the bank. Yeah, uh, the core concept is you play two characters, and uh, during the course of the bloody week when the French army invades Paris, uh, one of them will m- must die. The other one might die later. We, we, we get to that, but one of them has to die. Oh, that's nice. That's very good to know what you're getting into. I like that. Yeah, I had, a, I, I, I had to, after I traumatized one of my friends, I now have to remind people that... Uh, when they get to the part where they their surviving character has to make a terrible choice, that uh, no matter which choice you make, you may still end up dying, uh, because life is like that, unfortunately, and uh, the world does not like resistance. You know, let's talk a little bit about the historical background of this game that you're working on, Red Carnations on a Black Grave. Please tell me, tell us, about the Paris Commune of 1871. We're, we're booked for two hours, right? Um, so in 1871 in paris there was a sudden uh unexpected revolution 
that resulted with one of the most radical governments in certainly Western Europe history suddenly taking control of Paris. It was composed mostly of uh, socialists and radicals and uh, certainly people who believed in what they would call the social revolution, which uh, essentially the kind of, you know, if you want to talk about like the French Revolution, the American Revolution, were kind of about a, uh, a, a revolution of, you know, enlightenment principles of equality before the law, but not really changing society too much, you know. Uh, the social revolution was about leveling things, about, you know, destroying the privilege of the rich, about trying to make sure that everybody could eat, that sort of thing. So they were, you know, socialists for the most part, uh, at least a lot of the leadership was. And there were some out-and-out out actual, we belong to the uh, the International Working Men's Association, which for those of you playing at home with your communist international scorecards, is the first international, which was still being run by Karl Marx in London. Uh, they formed a fairly significant portion of the communist leadership too. So anyway, they managed to take control of Paris. They uh, tried to establish a egalitarian government that actually cared about things like women's rights and workers' rights and and uh, tried to do a lot of things in the 70 days of existence that they were allowed to have. The French government fled to the city of Versailles, the ancient royal capital, and uh, there they put together an army. And in the last week of May 1871, they invaded Paris. And, um, well, we don't know exactly how many people died. It was somewhere between 10 and 30,000 people. It may have been higher. People have been fighting over this number for a long, long time. The army said it was not that many. Uh, former communards would claim things like 100,000 people. One of the more interesting studies on trying to figure this out was a guy went through and he looked at the tax records from 1869 and then from like 1872. And even taking into account births and deaths and the fact that uh, during the siege by the Prussians, which I could talk to you about before uh, the commune, uh, a lot more people died. Uh, he still could not find about 30,000 people. Just didn't know, you know, Paris just lost 30,000 people. We don't know where they are. So that, that tends to be why I, I usually go with the number 30,000 people. Uh, these are mostly people who died in the working class regions of Paris, which uh, then as kind of now, not as much, but uh, where the northeastern parts of Paris, uh, Montmartre, uh, Belleville, uh, Batignon, places like that. Can you tell me more about the siege by the Prussians? So the longer story about how this all works is um, France was an empire uh, from uh, 1852 to 1870. Uh, in fact, it was the second empire is what it's called. Uh, and it was run by Napoleon III, who is uh, the more famous Napoleon's nephew. Uh, and how he got there is a long and weird and complicated story, but essentially uh, there was a second republic after the restoration of the Bourbons, uh, and then another revolution that brought in a different part of the Bourbons to run the country. Uh, and Napoleon III, who was still going as Louis Napoleon at that time, managed to get elected president, and because he couldn't run for re-election, decided to have a coup, and then had a referendum saying, hey, do you want to have another Napoleon empire? And people seemed to be down with that idea. So uh, Napoleon III was kind of 
not that great at a lot of things. He was a pretty corrupt guy. Um, he basically ruled it as a kind of soft autocracy. And, you know, that's the story of most 19th century European politics is uh, the middle class waking up and having the, realizing they have a lot of money and not a lot of political power. But then you also have at the same time uh, things like the revolutions of 1848, which were uh, a huge convulsive event all across the continent that did not result in a lot of change, though it looked good at the time for a little while. So uh, at this point, you start getting the second trend of European social thought in the 19th century, which is uh, the social revolution, the idea that we're going to level the differences between the classes, we're going to abolish the privileges, you know, we're going to get rid of the aristocrats, you know, no priests, no masters, that sort of stuff. So uh, in 1870, Napoleon was kind of getting on in years, and he got basically suckered into a war against Prussia. Uh, literally, uh, Bismarck literally faked a telegram to make it much more insulting when, he, when Napoleon received it. And uh, this started a war between uh, Prussia and France. Uh, Prussia at this point was basically most of northern Germany uh, was either part of Prussia or, or closely aligned with them. And uh, the Prussians' goal was essentially to use the war, uh, A, to, you know, humiliate France, win, but B, uh, to bring about the political unification of Germany. And in this, they succeeded beyond any expectation, uh, because the French were basically completely unprepared for a modern war against, uh, against an army as skilled and, uh, and modernized as the Prussian army. So uh, in the early stages of war at a place called Sedan, the French army was surrounded by the Prussians, uh, including the emperor who had gone to the front to command and was forced to surrender en masse. Uh, and at that point, um, Napoleon abdicated. When news got back to Paris, they said, hey, great, we're a republic again. But the idea of still fighting the war was popular. So uh, a Republican government of national defense was formed to try and prosecute the war, but it was kind of not going to work. Uh, a large part of the professional army was had either gone into Switzerland where they were interned as in a neutral country or they were, you know, actual prisoners of war. So the Prussians surrounded Paris and besieged it to the point where uh, the only way that they could get mail in and out was to use balloons. Um, rather famously, the, uh, the future premier of France, uh, Léon Gambetta, got into a balloon on Montmartre and sailed across the Prussian lines to try and organize resistance outside of Paris. Now, when to get us closer to the commune, after I've taken this nice little diversion, um, there is, a, there is again now, uh, but for a long time, from the revolution to this period, there is a uh, formation in France called the National Guard, which historically have been a kind of like bourgeois militia. Uh, during the days of the French Revolution, they had been very important uh, in in being able to, you know, whoever the National Guard sided with tended to win revolutions in Paris. Uh, and the same thing happened in 1848. First they turned on the king and then they turned on the uh, revolutionaries. So Napoleon got rid of the National Guard because, wow, this is not great, but uh, had to bring them back. Except this time uh, they opened up the ranks to more people. 
And the tradition in the National Guard, like in a lot of 19th century um, armies, uh, volunteer armies, like, you know, militias or in like the American Civil War, you have all the state regiments, they elected their officers. Uh, and that's not as stupid as it sounds off the bat, because uh, for this kind of war, a lot of it was mostly about, you know, discipline and morale, you know, getting your guys to walk up and shoot people and stand there in, in a line. So electing your officers wasn't a horrible idea. Well, these guys were all lower class, and so they elected the educated or, or popular people among them, which tended to be radicals. So pretty much overnight, uh, 300,000 people were under arms in Paris, and they were run by a extremely radical branch of Parisian working class people. So the uh, National Guard was basically the only work that you could get any money for during the uh, siege. Uh, and it got pretty bad. There was usually food if you had a lot of money, but if you didn't, you kind of were down to eating dogs, cats, and rats. And famously, the uh, zoo animals in the zoo of Paris were butchered and served in restaurants. And uh, yeah, but not you know not to working class people. Uh, if you were rich, you could get you know a little flank steak off a giraffe or something. But so the government of national defense eventually realized that you know the jig was up. Uh, and this infuriated a lot of Parisians because they kind of felt like nobody had tried to take the National Guard out of Paris to try and break the siege. Whether that would have worked or not, it's debatable. The National Guard was never a particularly um, crack military outfit, but it was it was tried a couple times and the results were pretty disastrous. But also they were led by people that didn't think they could fight, so who knows? Uh, so... The peace was pretty humiliating to France. Um, the provinces of Alsace and Lorraine were uh, outright annexed by the German Empire. Oh, by the way, there's now a German Empire, and they they had that ceremony in the Hall of Mirrors in Versailles, which is kind of embarrassing. <laughs> and they also marched the Prussian army down the Champs-Élysées and under the Arc de Triomphe. Uh, that did not go over well with a lot of Parisians either. Uh, and the terms were further humiliating in that, like, the French army had to disarm, um, and they had to pay 5 billion francs in refer reparations to the Germans. So the Germans basically stayed dug into the northeast of Paris because they weren't going to really leave until they started getting their money. Now, here's where I have to ask you, do you want me to get into even more little weird things that are sort of important, but I can elide? Yes. <laughs> It, there was a curious thing that uh, the Germans refused to sign a peace treaty with the government of national defense because they said, you guys, you know, what, what, by what authority do you do anything? You're just a bunch of guys that seized power. You have to have an election. So they did. But they had an election that they basically didn't tell anybody about. You know, some of it was they couldn't. And some of it was people were busy doing things like not getting shot by Germans or trying to find food. But the end result was uh, the the legislature that was returned was essentially heavily monarchist and conservative. And in France in this period of time, to be conservative usually meant you were some kind of monarchist. Now, there's about four different branches of, of monarchism in France, and all of them were represented, but they were mostly monarchists. So that didn't go over well in Paris. None of this is going over well in Paris. And so more and more uh, people began to talk about organizing and the National Guard, which was pretty radicalized, was openly calling for uh, the commune. 
Now, the commune here uh, is a concept that goes all the way back to the French Revolution, like a lot of things. But the short of it is uh, Paris was not under any unified government in this time. Uh, the individual 20 arrondissements, the postal districts of the city, each were considered their own political unit. And the uh, only form of higher organization was like at the department level. So there was a reason for that, which was uh, historically the way to win a revolution in France was to take control of Paris. So it, there was a lot of ideas that we were going to not allow that sort of thing to happen. So the commune at its most basic kind of concept was Parisian self-determination, that we'll have a unified Parisian government then it gets more like we'll have a unified unified Parisian government that will also get to like make its own demands and have its own thing going and like so the commune becomes synonymous with a lot of ideas about revolutionary or radical concepts we're gonna have a commune and in the commune you know we can write our own work laws and we can you know write our own taxes and all these things get kind of bound up into it so the actual inciting incident and the reason why the commune was such a uh, surprise to everybody, including the communards, is uh, this. I said the Parisian army had been uh, largely disarmed, and that's true. And all the artillery that was in Paris had been dragged away, except the National Guard was, you know, not part of the army. It was its own citizens militia under a different chain of command. And uh, to get their own artillery, they had actually done subscription sales to the people of Paris. <laughs> yeah. So they owned their own cannons. It was worse than that. The people of Paris felt that they owned these cannons. Now, at this point, I have to introduce one of the villains of the story, uh, who is a guy named Adolphe Thiers, uh, who is one of those guys who... Um, goes from left to right kind of by standing still. In his youth, he had been a guy kind of on the left, you know, a kind of soft Republican. By this point, he was a kind of soft monarchist. Uh, but he had been around forever, and he was the guy that was given the position of chief executive. It has a long title in French. It wasn't a president, but essentially he was, he was the guy in charge. He really was not too keen on the idea that um, there were a bunch of you know radical working class guys with their own guns, and uh, to the point where he actually asked the National Assembly to move out of Paris to Versailles because he felt that he could not guarantee their safety. Now that that could have been he was a kind of slippery guy in a lot of ways, so that could have been a sort of provocation. Like, look how serious this is. It's very serious, and I need to do a serious thing. But the long and short of it is he decided that he was going to go and get those guns because they, it was just intolerable for the government to allow them to be there. So in the early morning of the 18th of March, 1871, um, a couple of units of the regular army were sent into Montmartre, where most of the cannons had been dragged up on top of. Now, Montmartre is a very hilly area, and it's, it's, you know, the reason that it's called Montmartre is it's a big hill. So they had to march all the way on top of the hill to get them. And um, they got to the guns without a lot of problem. Uh, they shot one guy, um, probably probably more by accident than anything else. Uh, but then uh, a lot of the situation, normal, everything fouled up began to happen. They didn't have the horses to pull the guns away. So they had to kind of wait there for the horses to come. 
And by this point, uh, people were starting to gather, mostly the women who had gotten up very early to go out and, you know, get get the bread and or start the laundry or the many other tasks that they were forced to do. And they began to gather around the soldiers. And uh, at this point, discipline starts to break down and the soldiers begin to fraternize with them. <laughs> and so they're mixing together, but they're trying to drag the guns away. And slowly the members of the National Guard are forming up and coming down to see what's going on. And finally, you get to the point where um, the commander on the scene, a guy named uh, uh, General Clément Thomas, um, gives the order to fire into the crowd. And uh, the women uh, supposedly are standing there going, are you going to shoot, you know, your wives, your sisters, your, your daughters? Are you going to shoot your brothers? You know, we're all citizens of France, aren't we? And uh, in fact, they must have been because the soldiers refused to fire and instead they arrested Clément Thomas. Yeah. And uh, they also grabbed another guy later that day, another general, and... Uh, Unfortunately, or fortunately, it depends where you sit on this line. Uh, they were both executed later in the day. Uh, so at this point, the remaining army units and the government pulls out of Paris and heads for Versailles. And so the next morning, everybody wakes up and they are in charge. They had no plans to be in charge. Nobody kind of knew what was going to happen. The only thing that looked kind of like a government was the uh, Central Committee of the National Guard. And nobody really knew what they were going to do, except they were going to declare the commune. That was that was clear. We we're going to start that right off the bat. And uh, then it was, what do we do next? And it was decided to have elections. So um, some people felt that the thing to do next would have been to march immediately to Versailles. And under the theory that, you know, they were not organized and uh, that just as they had not fired on them on the 18th, the soldiers would not fire on them again. I don't know. Maybe it would have worked. It may have been their best chance to make it work. I'm not convinced it would have worked, but it might have worked. But they didn't. Uh, but they formed a government that was extremely uh, democratic, uh, maybe excessively so. And began to do things like pass laws to abolish night work on, in bakeries and to fix wages and to uh, abolish uh, conscription, but also enroll everybody between the age of 18 and 40 in the National Guard. And churches were seized and turned into public meeting halls and unions and committees were formed. And a lot of uh, the bourgeoisie and the rich people of Paris got the heck out as soon as they could. Um because uh, then as now, the western part of Paris is, is the more middle class and upper class, and the eastern and northeastern parts were the lower class areas. Um, so all these things began to happen. But meanwhile, uh, Thiers uh, was deciding that he was not going to allow this to just sort of happen. And Thiers had been... Uh, one of the guys who was instrumental in uh, kicking out Charles X, who had been a kind of real jerk of a king, and putting Louis-Philippe in. And then in 1848, uh, he had been of the opinion that if Louis-Philippe wanted to keep his crown, his the thing he needed to do was to send the army in and put down this insurrection right now. And the, those things were not done. So now Thiers is in power, 
and uh, he is deciding he's going to test his theory that the thing to do is to send in the army and crack down on everybody. And so he begins to assemble this army in Versailles. And one of the things he does is he goes to the Germans and says, hey, Bismarck, you know, we've got this problem with all these communists. Now, I'm sure you don't want all these communists hanging out right next to your army. And, you know, they're going to screw things up and, you know, maybe you won't get paid. And so Bismarck, being, you know, a, a pretty royalist and conservative dude, says, sure, here's what we'll do. You know, all those prisoners of war who we're going to exchange later in the year, we'll just let them go now. Yeah. So the thing about a lot of those guys is, first, they were mostly the professional soldiers. So uh, their officers were generally aristocratic. Uh, and the common soldiers were all basically, um, you know, a lot of them were career soldiers. So their discipline was strong. Second, they had not been in France during all this time. So a lot of the radical stuff, there were like three separate insurrections before the Paris Commune. So a lot of these things were not things that they were uh, kind of up on. They had not been involved in it. And their you know access to information was extremely restricted, first by the Germans and then by Thiers. And uh, finally, they had been part of one of the greatest humiliations in the history of the French military. The, the war with Prussia was an utter disaster and just exposed the army as, as incompetent in a lot of ways. And Thiers basically said, here is your chance to win back your honor by putting down this insurrection that is staining the uh, name of France. So all these things go on. But meanwhile, the commune is doing a lot of stuff. Um, there's a famous organization called the the Union of Women for the Defense of Paris and Care of the Wounded, uh, which gets founded up in Montmartre and uh, includes one of my personal angels of this, uh, the radical pain in the ass, Louise Michel. Uh, she was a 40-year-old school teacher, uh, the illegitimate daughter of a nobleman, apparently, and she was basically radical AF. <laughs> Uh, and was involved in a million different things in the commune. Um, and uh, in the 40 years she lived after the commune, she was a major pain in the ass to everybody. Uh, she was like, she's just amazing. Uh, she is a character in the game. She is, in fact, the reason I wrote the game in the first place, uh, kind of incidentally. Um, yeah, I blew off my uh, board game group one day to go and have a nice walk because it was a beautiful day in spring. And I bought a, I went to the Strand, which is a big used bookstore in New York City. And I bought a graphic novel about her, knowing nothing about Louise Michel. And just was reading it and like, hey, the Paris Commune, that could work. <laughs> so all these things continue to go on. But, you know, as the situation gets worse and worse, and uh, in April, the army, the National Guard tries to make that march to Versailles. And it goes very, very badly. <laughs> A lot of people get killed, uh, and the army demonstrates that they will have no problem shooting uh, anybody that surrenders to them. There were actual theories why they could do that. Like, they would shoot anybody that they thought had been in the army as a deserter. But, you know, they didn't check very hard very often. Uh, in response, the commune decides that they are going to shoot hostages for every prisoner that gets killed. And they do things like take the Archbishop of Paris hostage. 
Um, but the situation, the military situation just gets, goes from worse to worse and the army gets closer and closer and they begin to shell Paris. Um, and then finally, uh, on May 21st, 1871, uh, some units of the national guard either abandon their posts or quit their post or bribe to leave their post or something, but they were not guarding one of the gates and, a citizen in Paris noticed this, alerted the army, and they walked into Paris. Uh, because Paris was actually a really fortified city in this period. Uh, it had serious walls. If you go to Paris and you'll see like subway stops or areas on the map marked like you know, Port Melo or, or uh, Port Ivry, um, those, those were gates. Paris was walled. It had serious 19th century fortifications, which, by the way, the prime minister who had been in charge of building them Adolf Thiers. It was it was no it was noticed at the time that the forts that ringed Paris were also set up so that they could throw their artillery into Paris if they needed to. Uh, so uh, over the next week, the army uh, marched through the city, taking it block by block. Uh, the commune's defense was pretty disorganized. They uh, the national guard had been bleeding uh, uh, men for a while. People and just started to desert. They wouldn't show up when they were mustered. And, uh, you know, good reason by this point, because uh, the army shot anybody in a National Guard uniform. Uh, so there are stories of people who are, you know, men running home in a hurry, taking, trying to take off their uniform pants and jacket and clean their hands, because if you had any powder burns on your hand, they would just shoot you. They would just shoot you for a lot of reasons. Um, they, they would set up informal court martials, and it was pretty invariant, you know, go to the left, go up against the wall, and that's that. Uh, and that lasted about a week. And then uh, about 40,000 people were taken prisoner and marched across country to a place called Satari, which is a uh, barracks outside Versailles. And they were held there, and there were summary executions on the way, and there were people who died in the camp just of, you know, malnutrition and bad sanitation and disease. And they court-martialed a significant portion of the rest. A lot of people got uh, hard labor or, you know, prison sentences. Uh, a, a few were executed. Not as many as you might think, but then, you know, they had already gotten such a head start. And uh, they uh, deported a bunch of people to a place called uh, New Caledonia, which is a little uh, tropical island near Australia, kind of. Uh, and it was considered kind of a, not a great place to go. It wasn't as bad as, as Devil's Island in, in uh, what's you know, today, Guyana. But, uh, it was pretty bad. And uh, they were there for about 10 years. And then there was a general amnesty for all the communards and some came home and some didn't and uh, some remained in politics and were kinds of pains in the asses and and some weren't and some people who were adjacent to the commune but not kind of complete supporter like uh, Leon Gambetta who was uh, he was uh, in Versailles I think during most of the period because he was in the National Assembly but the mayor of Montmartre was a guy named Georges Clemenceau who would go on to be the prime minister during World War One. Uh, and there were guys who were actual communards who went back into politics and got elected later on. Um, but during the trial, uh, Louise Michel was, was put on trial. 
and uh, I, I like to read this because she uh, it's it's maybe the most amazing thing I've ever read of anybody saying in a courtroom. Uh, she didn't put on a defense. She she occasionally corrected the court martial uh, about certain points, but she didn't. She had no defense to make. And so uh, when they brought her up for her sentencing, they said, "You want to say anything?" And she said, "Yes." And uh, this is what she concluded with. Since it seems that all hearts which beat for liberty only have the right to a bit of lead, I demand my share. If you let me live, I will not cease to cry out for vengeance. I am finished. If you are not cowards, kill me. Uh, They deported her. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, she lived for 10 years on the island of New Caledonia, uh, doing things like amateur ethnography and writing a dictionary of the Kanak language and running a school and supposedly supporting the Kanaks when they try, when they uh, did a, uh, when they rebelled against the uh, French colonial government. So Um, she also was one of the few people that was initially accepting to the Algerians because during this period, there was also a revolt in Algeria that was one of the last really major uprisings against colonial rule until uh, the Algerian War of Independence in the uh, 40s and 50s. And uh, a bunch of the Algerian uh, who were captured by the uh, army were sent to New Caledonia as well. And they did not get amnestied in 1880 when the communards did. They got amnestied much later and they were not allowed to return. I just looked this up the other day. They were not allowed to return to Algeria until 1904. That would be, in itself, a very, like, kind of interesting milieu, like, just New Caledonia, like, people who are already living there, and colonialist pigs, and people who, like, some Algerians who'd been exiled, some, like, communards who'd been exiled, like, that's a good mix. Yeah, they, then there were, you know, there were, there were other prisoners who were already on the island. Uh, some of the Algerian families never left, and uh, to this there's a group of people called the Algerians of the Pacific who are descended from them who are still out there. Neat. Yes, it was a terrible, horrible tragedy, but it was very, there's a lot of neat things. (laughs) No, no. No, I feel the same way. It's like, it was this horrible thing, uh, and a lot of people don't know anything about it, but a lot of interesting things came out of it. Like, you know, Lennon was a uh, strong student of Paris Commune. He knew some commune arts. Mm -hmm. and uh, there's an apocryphal story that on the 72nd day after the uh, October Revolution, he did a little dance in uh, the Kremlin (laughs) because they had outlasted the Paris Commune. I I think that's probably apocryphal, but, you know, I do kind of like it. (laughs) I mean, you know, I could ask you, Okay, so what about this story really made you, you know, really inspired you to write a LARP about it? But it just seems so obvious. Like we said, it's doomed. Should correct you. It's not really a LARP. It's it is a tabletop. Oh, game. really? That makes sense if it's based on uh, Monsignor. Yeah, I like. Uh, I'm a lot, very interested sometimes in uh, that design space. That's kind of you know between LARP and tabletop even though like as a player i i like things like strict character monogamy and and i don't mind gm'd games i like to run gm'd games a lot but uh i also really like that territory of of something that's got you know that kind of intense bleedy feel you get from good larps 
but uh but you also have the the um the sort of narrative freedom to do a lot more theater of the mind stuff that at least in my experience can be a little more difficult to do when you're larping you know it's hard to like set radically set a scene you can but you know because it's it's this weird paradox because you know larp is good because you get to move around and you you know you get to feel the emotions of your character and your physical body and that's great but then you're also limited by you know your own space it can sometimes be a drag on your imagination like okay this is a spaceship i guess it's you know a box and when you're sitting at a table, I find like some of those conventions are just accepted. So there's a little bit more room to do things like just arbitrarily paint a scene or, uh, you know, do a radical cut in the middle of things uh, that logistically are just easier to do. So it's a, it's an interesting space for me. I like, uh, it, uh, I like a lot of games that feel like that fill that area. Like, uh, I'm actually a fan of My Daughter, the Queen of France. I don't know if you've ever heard of that game. That sounds really familiar, but I haven't played it. Yeah, it was. Uh, it was. It came out of uh, one of the Game Chef con- con- uh, competitions, and the idea is that one person, uh, Shakespeare, is writing a play with his actor friends uh, about the disappearance of his daughter, and you play through scenes, and as you create scenes, you write down things about them and you go back and replay them. And every time you replay a scene, um, you can do more things because each scene starts with very strong restrictions about what you can do. Like you can't express emotion or you, you can't like do direct dialogue and there's all these different things. And as you play them out, they get, they get pulled off. It's kind of this really interesting little game. Oh yeah. 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 I have heard of this. It's that's definitely one of those games that either like is totally, totally feeding in to its players. Like, Oh yes. Love it. Or it's just absolutely maddening. Like something about that repeating scenes that I think is really cool. Also, I know like drives people absolutely bonkers. Yeah, I'm pretty sure the rules say that the uh, game ends um, with either when Shakespeare decides that he's had enough and he's resolved his conflict, or everybody gangs up on him and says, "The police stop! You're not. You're just hurting yourself." <laughs> Too real. I wonder. Do you run into concerns or hesitations uh, just around history, around playing in a real historical period? Yeah. Um, I, in the uh, facilitator's introduction, it, the, the phrase I use is, we'll, we'll give you just enough history to play your character honestly. Um, there are short historical readings. I mean, I like short. I like tried to make sure that they were all about 100 words long that sort of set the scene um, of what I said, you know, some less detail, but just tries to hit the major events that happen in between the act breaks. And uh, also every, every uh, act has a different mood, which I hope focuses people a little bit on it. But um, for the most part, my expectation is uh, the finished game, depending on how much, how well we fund, we'll have a certain amount of historical apparatus that will come with it and maybe some picture references. But um, it, it's going to be the game that people want to bring play at the table. And if, if people want to make a mistake about what, what kind of guns the National Guard carried, if I'm not there, I'm not going to say you're wrong. It's just the game's going to be what it is. The important things in the game are to talk about 
what does it mean to be radical? What is it? What do you want if you know suddenly you were dropped into this situation where, where you are now in charge? The, the manifesto of the commune actually used this wonderful phrase. It says, "You are now masters of your destinies," and that's the situation you're in. But also, there's this knowledge that um, that things are doomed because you know everybody knows that this is not going to end well. And uh, that tends to crank up the uh, emotional space. And there's also advice I try and give people in both the rules and when I facilitate the game, which is um, the game has a lot of politics in it. I mean, like the politics have never not happened in any run of this game. Um, So it's much better if you just start by looking at your characters and just go from your characters and what they're feeling and what they're thinking and what their relationship is with other people. And there's relationship building um, mechanics in the game. There's uh, there's randomized question cards that, uh, that help us fill out the R map because the relationship map is really intentionally sparse at the beginning. Um, so, you know, hopefully by the time we've finished character generation, everybody's going to have a couple hooks into uh, into other characters and we'll explore where that's going to go you know are you in love with marie is is felix writing poetry about her for some reason you know do you think your game is educational yeah in that um yeah i think it is i mean i think Mm. i think people don't know a lot about the paris commune and some of that's kind of intentional like uh the french government tried to forget about it and then it slowly became resurrected as um as the this great revolt and you know the abhorrence which people had about how it was put down later um helped france stay a republic and not and not become a monarchy again Mm. um which there's a certain amount of truth to that and uh you know among among uh among the more you know uh uh in with it, leftist cliques. Uh, the Paris Commune is well remembered as you know this first great example of, of an attempt to build a social revolution, that you know, and it failed horribly, and they were all, all martyrs to the cause. But other than that, a lot of people don't know what ever happened. I mean, it's it, especially not in America. You know, in, in other in Europe, it, it may be better known, um, but in uh, in the United States. You know, we, there's not a lot of teaching about European history at, at a lot of levels. So it's certainly, you know, nobody's going to dwell too much on doomed French proto-communists from 1871. <laughs> now, thinking about these really particular, really easily forgotten historical periods, you also made a game called Midnight at the Oasis. It takes place in New York City in the 1990s. Can I ask you a bit about that? Uh, so Midnight at the Oasis is a uh, short story game um, about a lost... I don't want to say lost. I, I always say lost, but it's it's probably not lost, but it's not nearly the same as it was. But a uh, queer culture that has changed a lot in the time since. Um, basically it is about, uh, the denizens of a bar that has a one night a week that is a cross-dressing night. And so the patrons, uh, gather there and this is where they have their social, um, 
meet up for the week usually and for a lot of people it's the only time that they uh, are able to express their femme self and into this mix comes uh, a person who left uh, and was and was go going to transition to uh, to live as a woman full time and has come back detransitioned. And I want to emphasize that um, detransition is a really complicated subject, and uh, it's important and it's emphasized. I hope enough in the text that um, the detransition doesn't take. This is actually just an event that happens to a lot of people that this character is going to eventually either transition or return to a different kind of life, uh, you know, return to the kind of life that she had been living before, but here she is now. And it's kind of a very disruptive uh, event to everybody. And so the question is, how do people react? But it's also a question of, can, you know, I get people who don't know anything about this culture to, uh, you know, play, um, mostly straight cross-dressers from the 1990s. Yeah. Uh, this, so, I mean, I'd heard about Red Carnations on a Black Grave. People were very excited about it um, at Breakout. Um, and I was obviously very intrigued. But then, as soon as I started doing my research, I was like, okay, I really just want to talk about this. Because this is something that is incredibly recent. It's such a good lesson in how incredibly rapidly gay culture changes. Yeah, um, like, I think in the 90s, there would have been cross-dressers who didn't identify themselves as queer. Some, I mean, not, not, not saying all, or maybe even most, but the idea of claiming queer identity as, as you know, sort of kind of pan, um, well, queer culture signifier, uh, that was kind of slow and developing in a lot of different places. And uh, since it's also about New York City, New York City has, uh, you know, is large enough and has a large enough queer population that you can get a lot of different little um, subdomains, you know. And so, uh, and historically, uh, the trans or, you know, trans adjacent or trans feminine or any, you know, all of those cultures and, and, and the, uh, Gay liberation movements have had historical problems, uh, always getting on the same page. You know, uh, Sylvia Rivera is one of the heroes of Stonewall, but she had a lot of trouble staying as a significant figure in the gay liberation movement after Stonewall. And that was not uncommon. And so this particular culture tended to be kind of very sealed off in its own thing. Uh, but, you know, like, like crossdresses at the time didn't always didn't often go to places like gay bars, sometimes lesbian bars, but um, because it wasn't quite the same thing and the motivations were not quite lining up. That said, did people hook up? Oh, oh yes, oh, yes, very much. So. <laughs> but uh, did people also not hook up? Did people who went to those bars talk disparagingly about the? Uh, men i i don't even know what label to apply to uh the people that you know disparagingly are called chasers because um their their sexuality was extremely complicated and sometimes problematic but sometimes really interesting and uh and so there was you know there was a tension of people that would go to go out just to be out 
you know, to to have this moment in, in, in what was a larger closet, but was still a place where you could publicly be yourself, or at least a part of yourself that you couldn't do most of the rest of the time, you know, and, and then there were people who were there for sexual reasons, and, you know, that's okay, too. No, no judgments. Yeah, it's, I think that's, that's kind of that piece that fascinates me, that that there was a time when I don't know if, if it's the language that's limited or if it's a density of people thing or if it's just because it's like pre-internet thing where you have everyone together doing almost the same thing but only like not not internally doing the same thing you know or they're doing the same thing but not for the same reasons or they're doing what looks like the same thing on the outside, but it's not on the inside, right? And so you have people who today would be in completely separate forums, you know, completely separate areas, you know, having with completely separate identities at that time, and even more so probably in the 70s and 80s, just kind of all having to go to the same place because they're like, mm, close enough. Yeah, that was my experience when I would uh, encounter queer people outside New York. Uh, that, you know, in areas that had smaller populations, uh, you didn't get nearly that kind of uh, siloed effect that, you know, queer people just hung out all in the same place. You know, it, the, the gay bar was gay and lesbian bar and if people came in dressed, you know, cross-dressed or, you know, expressing a trans appearance of some kind or another. That was where they went. But larger cities, you could be more stratified. And so, like, the people who would have gone to a place like the bar I described in the game, uh, they wouldn't have called it a gay bar. They didn't call it a gay bar. They, uh, it was, you know, you might hear some people call it a TV night or something. Um, it was one of those weird things where transvestite was, uh, in American parlance, is considered uh, mostly derogatory. But the abbreviation wasn't. It was just a convenient way to do things. So it's like very good good code language too, like TV. Uh-huh. And uh, in British parlance, it's it's not nearly as as uh, derogatory, so it still gets used, and that's always kind of weird to see uh, when you see those kind of cultural markers like that. That's interesting. Have you uh, what what kinds of response do you get to a game like that? Have you um, had much chance to play test it? Have, do people respond? Um, it's it's weird. I, I have sometimes said that is the one game of mine that I may never actually play, but it has been it has been run a couple on a number of times, and I've seen uh, I've seen uh, the results of several of the playtests. Um, uh, it was run. Uh, there were a couple sessions run at uh, Dreamation, um, and I think it's been scheduled a few times, like on the Gauntlet, and um, people like it. <laughs> And and they find it to be a really powerful experience. Uh, so I mean, at least the ones that have talked to me about it. I'm sure there there might be people out there who don't like it, and they're just not going to talk to me about it. <laughs> um, which is fine. That's fine. Um, so and that kind of surprises me because you know it's one of those things where I, like I had the idea and I kind of knocked it out in a in a few days and and like I had the the basic thing that ended up making it work was to do a little map and have a sort of token moving game as part of it but uh it seems to hit with people uh who played it in a way that i did not really expect because again it's i don't know 
I, I don't know if this is me being insecure about things, but, uh, you know, like, like you know, I can't think that people want to play a game about doomed French proto-communists. <laughs> you want to play a game about 1990s cross-dressers in a bar in New York City? Okay. Um, so so that, that gives me hope that, you know, my next, my next big small project might actually be something that works. So it's always nice when people want to play a game you've made always just a thrilling surprise. Yeah. I, I'm like, I'm not trying, I, I want part of this whole process. I'm sure you probably can understand is, you know, getting to the point where when people give me a compliment about a game I've written, I just say, thank you very much. That's very nice of you. Uh, mm, yeah. Um, that took a while. Um, to get to that point, because you know, at some level, it's like I made this thing and you really like it. I don't understand why, <laughs> but <laughs> but that's good. I hope I hope that you like. I think just learning to take a compliment is a really good skill, and if game design is how you learn that skill, sure. Yeah, I mean, I learned I had to learn it for sure about this, but yeah, it's always a you know that's the thing a lot of people say. I guess I don't know, but um that people like these games is 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 incredibly um satisfying and it, like i can't express my um my my gratitude enough that people feel touched just because they played something that i wrote um and you know i really want to make red carnations exist in the world so that other people can have it and play it and uh and yeah midnight sure at some point i'll probably publish it it needs a little more cleaning up and i'll see what i can do to make it available in some form anyway i also i also have a very nice little hack of world of dungeons uh that's science fiction game but it's uh it's called rovers it's um it's a hack of uh, world of dungeons turbo and um it's it came about because uh i wanted to play a certain peripatetic uh game of of, of space opera that I had played a lot in my youth. But when I sat down to see if I could actually bring it to my meetup, I just decided that I could not, in fact, go back to running, playing those rules. They're fine. I think a lot of people get a lot of joy out of, out of playing with them, but I just didn't want, I just no longer was in the kind of headspace where I wanted to take that to it. So um, obviously the only solution then was to write a game. So... <laughs> When when making a game is easier than playing your game, your game is very complex. And complex is not necessarily a bad thing. But, you know, as we grow and change, our needs change, you know. I played so much Traveler when I was young. I played so much Traveler. I adore Traveler. I still adore Traveler. But, um, you know, when I'm, I run two-hour slots at the uh, meetup here and... Uh, that's that's not a lot of overhead that you can get into a game into that game kind of gaming space so pickup games are a better thing for that and uh you know hand somebody a character sheet and tell them to check off five things is an easier way to run things usually yeah definitely two hours slot you couldn't even make a character much less a ship i have run uh i have run monster hearts from Caregen to a relatively solid conclusion in two-hour slots. I'm not saying it's easy. I did it with a six-spot once. That was fun. <laughs> um, but I learned. I've learned a lot about doing things because of the two-hour slot. It's a. Uh, it's a. It's an interesting GMing challenge in a lot of ways. Uh, it's not something I regret having done, but uh, sometimes it can feel very short. But 
It's a good creative constraints. Yeah, you learn a lot of really good pacing skills. It's been really lovely chatting with you, I have to say. I I always get I always like to learn something when I get to interview people. Um and I feel like this time around I learned so much. I did warn you. <laughs> it's true. It's true. There was a sort of um uh, almost a cracking of knuckles sound uh, that I could hear through the computer as we were um organizing this. Uh, if uh, if folks want to know more either about red carnations on a black grave or just you and the stuff that you're up to, where should they go? Uh, right now, the uh, place that you're going to get the most common updates is uh, is my Twitter handle, which is at Aviatrix Games. Uh, that's A-V-I-A-T-R-I-X and games. Um, right now... Uh, it's April when I'm talking to you. Uh, I've been doing uh, a Twitter thread a day about the Paris Commune, so uh, you can go through there and you'll learn a lot. You'll learn a lot of stuff, maybe. <laughs> and uh, there is a website, uh, aviatrixgames.com. It's pretty basic right now, but uh, at some point, maybe that will get a little more ramped up as we get closer to kickstarting. Cool. Well, but I... you can download uh, games there. So hey, <laughs> there you go. There's some games. Maybe it'll be the game yeah. you want. Maybe it'll be a different one, you know, roll the dice, as as they say. Um, well, okay, sweet. Um, as soon as the Kickstarter is up, I will, of course, I'll tweet that out. And, uh, and I'll have some links in the show notes. Um, thank you so much for joining me. I'm really glad, I'm glad we could set this up. Yeah, I'm, I'm really glad to. It's an absolute pleasure to uh, talk with you again, Alex. always thank you for listening if you have thoughts on today's show you can always email me that's backstorypodcast at gmail.com or you can follow me on twitter at backstorycast backstory is hosted by me alex roberts and produced by the talented alex sisk we're proud to be hosted on the one shot podcast network you can go to oneshotpodcast.com to find more great shows like arms of the tide arms of the tide is a new actual play about fighting for what's right in an original magitechnological world on the brink of catastrophe using the mutants in the night system mutants in the night was developed by former backstory guest dc so if you enjoyed that maybe you'll enjoy checking out quinn joe chanel and john as they revel in the laughs and gasp with the drama while the only thing standing against the apocalypse are a robot with a fondness for stray cats a wolf made of living plants with a bad case of depression and a private eye who's so done with all of this sounds fun you can check it out again at oneshotpodcast.com music for backstory is provided by yujiko the track is called thinking of you and you can hear more by searching ujico on spotify or youtube or wherever else you get your chill beats talk to you later friends Thank you.